Thank you for joining us for the Ravenswood Baptist Church podcast with Pastor Dustin Moore. We are a Bible-believing, grace-driven church located on the north side of Chicago. As a church, we are passionate about making disciples of all people for the glory of God. If you would like more information about our ministry, visit ravenswoodbaptist.org. Now, here's Pastor Dustin. Take your Bibles and open them to Colossians chapter 1. Let me remind you every week that you can, you can go on to ravenswoodbaptist.org, go to the live link there, and under there is a, uh, under that, on that link, underneath the video feed is going to be uh, the bulletin and the prayer sheet and then the message outline that we typically have given out when you come in. Uh, it's there if you like to follow along on a device or, or print it. I like to print it for my family. Um, and so they're available there. Those will be a help to you. Uh, we're going to begin this study, and I'm going to talk very quickly today. A little bit of information, and then leading very quickly into some, I hope, some very direct application. Uh, but but uh, I'll trust the Spirit of the Lord on that job. Uh, so follow me, if you will, to Colossians chapter 1 and verse, verses number 1 and 2. I'm going to read, and then we'll get into some introductory remarks on this book. Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 1. This is God's word. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timotheus our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. As we begin our new study today, I want to remind you about the importance of the context of Scripture. You and I don't have the right or the permission to take God's Word and create a meaning, invent some random meaning, or even adapt its meaning to a certain time period or culture. The meaning of a biblical text is always found within the context that the author intended. We refer to this as authorial intent. Every book of the Bible is written in a context to the original audience with a varied application or applications in our life and time. Let me say that again. Every book of the Bible is written in a context to an original audience with varied applications in our life and time. This is the supernatural power of the Word of God. Don't be discouraged by that fact. Take great encouragement in knowing that outside of the Bible's own claim on inspiration, one of the greatest examples of the authority, the infallibility, the inspiration, and the preservation of God's Word, and why you should take God's word seriously, is the fact that there has never been a time where God's word has not been sufficient, powerful, and applicable. There's never been a time. And so as we get into the study of the book of Colossians, my feelings about this are not changed. As we say around here, we get into the word so that the word gets into us. The book that we're going to study is timely, and plentiful to address what the Holy Spirit has for the church, whether it's 60 A.D. or 2020 A.D. Paul writes this letter of Colossians 
to a young, spiritually immature church in the city of Colossae. Colossae was once a great city, but by this time, it was nowhere near what it once was. As you can see on the screen, Colossae was it located in what is now modern-day Turkey. There, just a little bit to the northwest, is the great city of Ephesus. To the east, significantly to the east, is Tarsus and Antioch. To the southeast, through the Mediterranean, is Jerusalem. And in the 3rd and 4th centuries before Christ, Colossae was one of the most prominent cities in its vicinity. One of the reasons for its prominence was it was, through Colossae, was a major road that connected port cities like Ephesus and Sardis, and north and south cities also traveled through Colossae. But later on, before the time of Christ, the road that went through Colossae eventually changed and it moved to go to the west a little bit, more conveniently, through the city, a city named in the Bible of Laodicea. In Paul's day, when Paul's writing this, Colossae was not large. It wasn't really all that important. Just 12 to 15 miles west and northwest of Colossae were two cities that were significantly of greater importance. And that was Laodicea and Hierapolis. We're going to hear about those cities. But in the early 60s, an earthquake devastated the area and Colossae was eventually rebuilt. Now, We don't know how quickly, but we do know that Laodicea was also destroyed, but was restored significantly faster because of its importance. Geographically, Colossae belonged to the region of Phrygia. In Paul's day, it was part of the Roman province of Asia. It's located on an important highway and was of considerable mobility. Even in this day, there was a highway that brought people to Colossae that mixed, it mixed the city to different ethnic groups and it typified the Roman Empire, meant that the population of Colossae was diverse. The majority of the city would have been Gentile, but there definitely would have been a good amount of Jews in Colossae as well. Now little is known about this Colossae church. Little is known about it. J.B. Lightfoot, a scholar wrote this, he said, Colossae was the least important city, excuse me, the least important church of any epistle of St. Paul that was addressed. Lightfoot's claim is that this city was, and this church was of lesser significance, although we know that there is no insignificant church. All churches, not small churches, all churches, not just big churches, but all churches are important. But Lightfoot's point is that this church at this time was nowhere near what the Ephesus and Corinth and Thessalonica and churches even like Philippi. But we do know, in fact, that Paul had not at the time of this writing visited this church. Along with not visiting the church, Paul was not even the founder of this church. Chapter 2 of Colossians, verse number 1 says this, For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you, and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. So Paul is writing to a church 
where he's not been. There's no accounts in Acts of Paul visiting Colossae. The people had never met him, but they had surely heard about him. Because the pastor at the church at Colossae was a man named Epaphras. In verse number 7 of chapter 1, we find Paul writes these words about Epaphras. He says this, As ye also learned of Epaphras, who is the pastor of the church, Epaphras, our dear fellow servant for you, or excuse me, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. In verse 12 of chapter 4, Paul says this. Now bear with me, all introduction here. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that ye may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him record that he hath great zeal for you, and them that are at Laodicea, and them at Hierapolis. Remember, these three cities, Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis. Paul is commending Epaphras, the pastor. Paul's not been to Colossae, but Paul knows the pastor. Epaphras was a convert of Paul from the time of his almost three-year ministry in Ephesus. Epaphras also happened to be from Colossae. He was one of them. Verse 12, as I already read, said this, Epaphras, who is one of you, he is a Colossian. He is from this region. Paul loves Epaphras. He later talks about the bond that he has with Epaphras by calling him a fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus. Notice Philemon in verse number 23. There's Salute. By the way, Philemon lives in Colossae. So he writes to, to Philemon and says, There salute thee, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus. What has happened is that Epaphras has more than likely gone to visit Paul in Rome. Colossians is a prison epistle and most believe it was written from Rome. Some do believe that it was written in the port city of Ephesus. Regardless, I would take the position of Rome. And Epaphras has gone to visit Paul. He shares what's going on in the church at Colossae. But we don't know very much about what's requested or what's been mentioned to Paul or for what help Paul has been asked. Clearly, Epaphras just says, Paul, I need some help. So Paul addresses this letter around the time of 60 to 61 A.D. Remember, I mentioned that sometime about this time there's a significant earthquake in in Colossae. The city is not what it once was. But about this time, Paul sends this letter to Colossae with, with a man named Tychicus and another man named Onesimus. You might know the name Onesimus from the book of Philemon. Onesimus and Tychicus take the letter from Paul to Colossae and to Philemon in this time. And that is because both of these letters are addressed to people and to a church that meets in this city. Now what is the purpose of this letter? This matters. Why was it written? That Answering that question matters. Because it determines how we see the meaning of this book for the next several months. I propose to you, now stay with me, all right? Listen very closely to this. This is key. 
I propose to you that Epaphras had gone to Paul and told him of this young, diverse church that was spiritually immature and was being persuaded by other philosophies and teachings of man. And Epaphras needed Paul's help for them so that the people in his church would come to spiritual maturity. And so I present to you that spiritual maturity is the aim of the book of Colossians. Notice in verse number 9 of chapter 1. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Back in verse, uh, it's back in uh, chapter number, uh, chapter number four, Paul says that Epaphras has labored for them in prayers, and he says this: that ye may stand perfect and complete in all of the will of God, in all of the will of God. See, the kind of maturity that Paul writes about is the maturity that God wills for his people. God wills for his people to be formed in the image of Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul writes to the church in Rome, and he tells the church in Rome that God had predestined, he had predestined that all who believed in Christ will be formed into the image of Jesus. Romans chapter 8. In verse 29, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. This is God's will for believers. God wills for each believer, hear me, each of us, he has willed for us to be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Verse number 9 of chapter 1. He wills for that. That's why I would argue of the necessity of the church and the gathering and the opening of the word. It is because God has willed for his people to be coming to spiritual maturity. But herein lies the problem. Stay with me. Christian maturity seems to have always been the goal or the focus of most Christian, gospel-preaching, Bible-believing churches. It seems to have always been the goal. It seems to have always been the aim. The problem is not the goal. The problem is usually the means that we take, the means through which we attempt to grow ourselves and others. The aim has always been spiritual maturity, and I commend churches, and I commend our church with a rich history of Seeking to see disciples come to know Christ uh, in, in salvation and then to be discipled into the image of Jesus Christ. I commend a church. The problem is not the goal. The problem is the means through which we attempt to bring people to spiritual maturity. Now bear with me. Colossians addresses some of the means through which churches often attempt. Now stay, hear me. Don't turn me off on this yet. What Colossians addresses is some form of obedient law-keeping. Some kind of regulatory standards. Something Paul, so Paul addresses obedient law-keeping, regulatory standards, and he even goes into addressing some kind of special knowledge. Something learned. 
or some kind of special knowledge. So let me say it like this. Here's what has been ingrained to believers and into the people at Colossae. Are you with me? Here's what we often have been taught and what we think. Mature Christians obey God. That's what we think. All right, hang on. Mature Christians obey God. We think mature Christians live separated lives. We think mature Christians know their Bibles. But let me tell you what Paul does in Colossians. In Colossians, Paul blows up man-centered obedience. He blows up obedient law-keeping as the means for spiritual maturity. In Colossians, Paul blows up outward ritualism, otherwise called as asceticism. He blows that up as being the form to bring people to spiritual maturity. And so in other words, Paul says, your obedient law-keeping doesn't make you mature, and your outward ritualism doesn't make you mature. He even goes on to say and address something that we often call Gnosticism, and that is special knowledge makes you mature. The, that, that what equates being close to God is knowing your Bible and knowing the Word of God and knowing theology. And Paul says, your obedient law-keeping doesn't make you mature. Your, your separated life doesn't make you mature. Your external standards don't make you mature. Your knowing your Bible does not make you mature. You ready? Here's what Colossians says. All of Colossians hinges on this fact. Mature Christians become mature only by Jesus. Now I know that you hear that and you go, all right, break that out. We're going to break that down for you as we look in the, in, through Colossians. But mature Christians become mature by only Jesus. You see, you could be an immature Christian and obey the Bible. You could be an immature Christian. In fact, unbelievers can obey the Bible. You could be an immature Christian and live a separated life. And you can do so to be judgmental about others. You can think that you're immature, you're mature by knowing the Bible. But you can know all that you want to know about the Bible and still be spiritually immature. That's the point of Colossians. The point of Colossians is Jesus is the one who makes you mature. You see, we don't start with Jesus and then leave Jesus for greener pastures. The Colossian Christians aren't to start with Jesus and then grow past Jesus. They don't begin their Christian life with the gospel and then outgrow the gospel. Colossians says that Jesus is superior to all things, even our so-called Bible methods of spiritual growth. Verse number 6 of chapter 2 says it like this, As ye ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him. In Him. Rooted and built up in Him. Established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein. In Him. Therein with thanksgiving. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in Him... Dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are, you ready? Think with me, church. And ye are complete in Him, which is the head of all principality and power. See, the Christian grows in maturity in Jesus, not away from Jesus. Paul's words to a young, immature church is this, only Jesus. Only Jesus. 
to an older seasoned Christian, only Jesus. To husbands and wives, only Jesus. To parents, only Jesus. To teenagers, only Jesus. And to children, only Jesus. Get ready, you're going to hear it and hear it and hear it and hear it. You've heard it for four and a half years. It has always been Jesus. It will always be Jesus. It is still in Jesus. As we think about the text, as we think about this text, Paul introduces a familiar, in a familiar setting. In fact, most, most of Paul's letters are introduced in this way, because there's no envelopes in that day. So the opening of the letter was an explanation of who is writing and to whom they are writing. So take a minute with me this morning, a little bit of a different approach as we just look at the introduction, but I want you to see with me three things this morning. Three, three facts in this opening that if you've been with us and we've been through a Pauline letter, you're not going to be surprised at the three points today. I'm not trying to be fancy. I just want to show you what the Bible says. So number one, the first thing I want you to see is calling, calling in the gospel. Calling in the gospel. I could literally apply this breakdown to almost all of Paul's letters. A calling in the gospel, gospel is Paul introduces himself. He d- does so in this way. He says, Paul, that's me. He says, I'm, I'm Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timotheus, our brother. So Paul's introducing himself to Christians he's never met. And so what he does in his opening, is he, in his opening here is he explains his credentials so that he has the authority in their eyes to discuss these matters with them. He does so because he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is, according to Paul, this is and was God's will for him. As all apostles in the early church, meeting meeting the resurrected Christ was a prerequisite to apostleship. You could not be an apostle if you had not met the risen Christ. Paul met the risen Lord on the road to Damascus, Syria, as he Notes in Acts chapter 9, as noted by Luke in Acts chapter 9, notice in verse number 4, and he fell on the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecuted. persecutest. Jumping down to verse 15, we find that Paul gets his, he gets his calling. When Ananias is told by the Lord, go thy way, for he, Paul, is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says that he's received the grace of apostleship. He's been an apostle by the will of God. His apostleship was often debated by false teachers. So Paul has to make it clear, specifically to the Galatian believers, he had to tell them that the church leaders themselves verified his office. In Galatians 2, verse number 8, we find these words, For he, hath, he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, or to the Jews, the same was mightily in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, the three pillars, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship that we should go unto the heathen and they unto the circumcision. So Paul has verified often in his writings that he is credentialed as an apostle. An apostle simply means one, excuse me, it's a sent one or 
one sent forth with orders. Paul's an apostle. God willed it. His writing is authoritative, even if these Christians don't know Paul. And here he writes with a dear brother, a fellow minister, somebody who's often with Paul. It's Batman and Robin, if you will. It's Timothy. Timothy is present with Paul at the time of writing. Now, a totally different point, but let me just clarify what I believe is given not only to Paul, but I believe all Christians are given in the gospel a calling to make Jesus known. I believe all Christians, if you're here today and you claim to be a believer, God has given you a calling, and you may not write with authority God's word as Paul did or as Scripture has inspired Paul to write, but let me just say, your calling in the gospel is as Paul's to make Jesus known. To make Jesus known. Your calling as a believer, wherever that is, wherever that has placed you, is to make Jesus known. The second thing we see in this text, moving quickly, is identity in the gospel. Identity in the gospel. I'm going to move very fast here. Verse number 2. The first part of it, we see this. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae. To the saints and faithful brethren. It's obvious by this introduction that Paul is writing to fellow Christians, to believers. Yet this letter that I believe and others would argue is about Christian maturity, in this letter Paul makes a very dogmatic point. Now hear this, I think it's, I think it's very important. He writes and he says, to all the saints. Now saints are holy ones, they are people who are called holy. Christians are often referred to as saints. And he also writes to what he calls faithful brethren. Faithful brethren. Paul regularly calls believers saints. This is not just some Christianese term. It's a Bible phrase. It's a Bible term. Paul sees these Christians and he calls them saints and faithful brethren because Paul sees these believers as God sees them. You do understand today that God, as, that God sees you not as a sinner, but God sees you as a saint. You do understand today that God sees you not as unfaithful, but God sees you as faithful. Because when God looks at you, He sees His Son. And this is heaven's perspective on believers. And so when Paul writes to ch- a church, and he writes to them to talk about spiritual maturity, he tells them, this is who you really are. You're saints. You are holy ones. This is who you are. You are faithful brethren. So this letter about Christian maturity begins with Paul telling them what they are and who they are so that they know how to grow into this maturity in the gospel. I want to say to the saints and faithful brethren at Ravenswood, those of you that are in Jesus, don't demean that. Don't diminish your identity in the gospel. Don't dismiss your identity in the gospel because it is from this reality of how God sees you that you and I are called and empowered to grow into the true self that we are by the power of the gospel. You and I, in Christ, through Christ, by Christ, only Jesus, by Jesus, for Jesus. That's our identity. And then we see what's promised in the gospel. I told you. I'd break every one of Paul's letters down pretty much the same way. Calling in the gospel. Identity in the gospel. 
and what is promised in the gospel. And here it is. Don't outgrow these. Don't get bored with this. Don't diminish it. He says this, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here is the promise implications of the gospel. This is where we begin to grow in spiritual maturity. It's not moving away from grace and moving away from peace, but it is recognizing the grace and peace that we have. A similar greeting is given in Romans 1. Grace and peace. 1 Corinthians 1, 2 Corinthians 1, Galatians 1, Ephesians 1, Philippians 1, 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 Thessalonians 1, 1 Timothy 1, 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 2 John, and even John's letter in Revelation, those letters all begin by giving grace and peace. It's at the heart and center of the gospel. Grace and peace that are fully given in Jesus. This is what's given to us. And I plead with our brothers here and our sisters here today, don't outgrow your heavenly reality. Don't get bored with the heavenly reality that comes to us from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. This promise of the gospel, grace to you. God's unmerited favor that is seen in the rescuing work of Jesus. Don't move away from that. Don't outgrow that. Don't get bored with that. Don't lose the, 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 the beauty of that. That in Jesus, grace has been given. And don't move away from this fact. That peace comes to us. And peace is that reconciling work. From God to his enemies. When they come to Jesus in faith. If there's no Jesus, there is no grace. And if you want grace, you got to find it in Jesus. There's no peace apart from Jesus. And there is no relationship with God the Father without peace in Jesus. You see, all spiritual maturity comes from this place. Grace and peace. We're desperate for both. And so I conclude today a very simple message. Reminding you of the grace and peace that's available to all. I've joked often that we here at Ravenswood, we want to be graceaholics. We want to drink of that, of that fire hose constantly of the grace that's available in Christ. We want to recognize our position before the Father is in peace. That, God, that Jesus has brought peace and he's made peace available in Ephesians chapter 2. So this relationship is possible. Because here's what we often do as believers. We want to grow in spiritual maturity and we do so thinking that if I do this, grace will be available. No, grace is available before you're doing. If I do this, I'll have greater peace. No, greater peace comes before the doing. See, peace starts with Jesus, not getting away from Jesus. Since your earliest moments on this earth, and my earliest moments, we made ourselves the God. We lived at war with the Creator. The God of heaven sent Jesus to come, and He embodies grace. He is grace. And He makes peace available to each of us. See, these core pillars of the gospel, grace and peace, 
But here's, what's, here's what Colossians is going to force you to answer. Here's what Colossians is going to force these four questions. Colossians is going is to force you to answer. If you allow the word of God to penetrate your heart, you're going to have to answer these questions. Are you ready? Here they are. Is my own Christian maturity a priority in my life? Is my own Christian maturity a priority in my life? Because this, this letter is written to a church, a church does play a role in bringing believers to maturity by the preached word, by the glorious gospel being proclaimed in song and word. The church has a big part of that. But hear me, it is your individual priority to own that maturity. Is it a priority? Parents, is it priority in your home? Christian maturity. It's going to force you to answer that question. Secondly, these two questions go together, but I see them as one thought. So here it is. What is the focus of my Christian life, and where do I place dependence? Colossians is going to force you to ask that question. What is the focus of my Christian life? Is my focus obedience? Hear me. That's not wrong. But it becomes a misplaced dependence when you go, God, I be, I'm being obedient, God. Look at me, God. I'm being obedient. God says, no, you're, you're, you're not obedience for your dependence. You look to Jesus for dependence, and that dependence makes you obedient. Don't put cart before horse. Where's your focus, and where do you place dependence? Number three. To what Christian maturity standard am I holding other Christians? I love this one. Well, there's a lot of there's a lot of shaming and blaming that goes on in our culture today, isn't there? A whole lot of standard giving. A lot of people pointing fingers and going, "You're not loving neighbor," regardless of your position on positions. I don't really care. As much to say this. Somebody loving neighbor is not a statement of spiritual maturity. And because you love your neighbor does not make you spiritually mature. Those don't equate the same thing. And so in a, as a Christian, what standard do I hold other Christians to? And here it is. Here's the most freeing standard. You ready? Are you looking to Jesus? Are you looking to Jesus? Are you looking to Jesus? Because I'm looking to Jesus, and I need others walking with me that are looking to Jesus. And so I can let you off the hook on so many other things when I recognize that all Christian maturity comes from Jesus, not by you doing what I think you should do. Are you with me so far? Great. Wonderful. Number four. Number four, let me just ask you this, and I'm out of time, so forgive me. What role does Jesus play in my life? What role does Jesus play in my life? I like how Sam has mentioned this, Sam Park has mentioned this to me many times. Is Jesus a transactional person in my life? Do I come to Jesus and swipe a debit card of works to get from Jesus what I hope to get from Jesus? Basically... Do I make Jesus my genie and go, I'm going to 
Jesus, I just need you to give me what I need. Get me out of hell. Give me a, a, a cool family or not so cool family, whatever you think about us, to be a part of. Jesus, I, just, I just need to, if you can just give me this, Jesus, I'm going to do this today. If you can just do this for me, it would be great. And it's this transactional relationship. If I do for Jesus, I expect him to do back for me. And that is how we try to manipulate. Some people even come to church to try to manipulate that. Even our conscience. But Jesus is not your genie. He's not your genie. He's your everything. He's your everything. We move from transactional, I'm going to do for you, Jesus, but I really need you to come through for me in the clutch here, to relational covenantal of Jesus, you're everything for me, and you're everything, you're my strength, you're my, you're my fortress, you're my buckler, you're my high tower, you're my, you're my everything, I need you, you're everything to me, Jesus, and my eyes are fixed on you, and my gaze is on you, and my dependence is on you, I can't obey without you, I can't know the word without you, I can't grow without you, Jesus, you are everything to me. So Colossians says, want to be mature? What is Jesus' role in your life? As I've said over and over and over, and if you're hearing it and you're sick of it, good, you're just now starting to hear it enough. Jesus and the gospel is not a diving board into the pool. It is the entire pool of the Christian life. So, this message, only Jesus. Only Jesus. We're good at giving people a list and a checklist. We're good at giving people expectations. And they may have a biblical Backing, but we need to understand that we want to begin at the right place. That all Christian maturity flows out of Jesus. You see, here's what I'm going to argue to you for the next few months. I'll tell you, and then you can free, feel free to not come to church until we're done. You ready? Here it is. Spiritual maturity does not happen by moving this way from Jesus. Spiritual maturity happens as we grow deeper into Jesus. I'm going to explain that to you over the next few months. But our dependence goes deeper into the roots, rooted and built up in Him, deeper into Christ, not laterally away from Christ. I do hope it pushes some buttons. I hope it makes you think a little bit. And it forces you to ask some questions. But if you're here today and you're not a Christian, or you're watching today and you're not a Christian, simply say to you, salvation is that as well. It is only Jesus. If you want to know the Christian gospel, we'd be glad to tell you, but it's summarized in two words. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. You can reach out to us. You can comment, you can email us, we'd be glad to tell you about that message of only Jesus. Church family, I know you all, and by your own testimony, you're a believer in Jesus. 
you believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I encourage you, I encourage you to probe deeply within your spiritual life this week and ask those questions. Where is Jesus? Where is Christ? Where is my dependence on Christ? He makes Christians mature. Only Jesus. Thanks for listening today. If you're listening for the first time, we would love to hear from you. Maybe you have a question about the gospel of Jesus. If so, we'd like you to send us an email at hello at ravenswoodbaptist.org. If you're a regular listener to our podcast and you would like to donate to the media ministry and outreach ministry of Ravenswood, your gift would allow us to do more in an effective way to get the gospel out. Thank you for partnering with us in ministry in Chicago and around the world.